Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset for, let's call it the penultimate edition of 2022. We might uh, treat you all to a, a Christmas edition uh, of the pod to uh, to keep you tired over across the summer months. Um, Christy Doran, welcome in from London. Mate, I know you're running on fumes after a, a busy couple of weeks, but um, surely there must have been a, a spring in the step after that Wallabies come back in Cardiff on Saturday night. It was a case of here we go again, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, all, as a journalist, you're kind of all looking for a, um, the opportunity to get the bare bones down by 60 minutes and get the structure in order because you can tend to know what's happening. On this occasion, we threw out the initial edition and very much had to watch the last couple of minutes unfold because you thought, okay, here's another yellow card down to 13. Good luck. Um, this Wallaby side's coming, and then you see a drop kickoff that seventy third, fourth minute, and then you've got a um, a really big, uh, dramatic ending when the Welsh crowd is going nuts, trying to inspire their crowd to get over the line, for, which would have been a match ceiling try, and then the conversion to come. But blimey, you know they don't make it easy. The Wallabies do they? They do not. Uh, I must admit, I opted for a couple of extra hours sleep through the middle of the night and went for the the 7am alarm and the, the stand sport uh, functionality just to hit uh, play on the game as soon as you get up and enjoy it. I had seen the score, so I was certainly in a, in a better frame of mind than perhaps I was expecting. But um, you're right, obviously, Wales uh, dominated that first half um, pretty easily and considerably. Um, really exposed the Wallabies both through the middle um, I thought the first try was was rather soft, you would have to say. And then big Toby Falatau getting it done um, outside uh, in the right corner as well. Uh, those first two tries, um, putting the Wallabies on, on the back foot. And um, I mean, it, it probably felt a little bit under what Wales um, had deserved to halftime. It felt maybe one try short of of where uh, the, the game had been played, in, in my opinion. And but obviously, in the second half, they got the opportunity to get out to a to a thirty four thirteen lead, and as you say, at the sixty minute mark or even the sixty five minute mark, as it was, um, any hope of a, of a Wallabies comeback and uh, looks certainly uh, out of the question. And back home, people probably preparing the, the death warrants for, or at least the uh, the sacking notes for for Dave Rennie in in some parts. But you you've got to admire the the character of. The comeback, and to be honest, I I found the character line tough to buy at times this year. It's been a favourite of Dave Rennie's throughout the season. That um, even in defeats, I really you know first up, almost always the, the response to the first question was, uh, "We showed a lot of character out there today." And and for me, at times that's been questionable. But there was no doubt about that on the weekend. Was there to to come back? Um, with barely, and, and you'll be able to bring us in a little bit more on this, Christy being over there. I think there was just enough players to get a 23 on the field uh, in the end, uh, following Michael Hooper's um, concussion midweek. Um, 25, uh, Sammy Talakai gets his debut as a result. Um, of course, James Slipper goes down with concussion um, at half time. So the odds were completely stacked against them on this occasion. So uh, a big tick for, for their response to, to come home in the way they did uh, and finish the season um, in, in pretty remarkable fashion. Yeah, you're not wrong. The, the the pivotal moment, I thought, in the game was the 40th minute mark where um, Wales have made a break down the left-hand side just in front of where you sit in the press. You've got an amazing spot there at, at Cardiff at 
the old Millennium Principality where you're probably 10 rows back and you're not going to get closer in international rugby now to, to uh, report and get a bird's eye view. But break down the left-hand side, cuts in, and I think it was Tom Wright that made a good ball and all shot. Um, and Jake Gordon doesn't get back on side from the resulting rack and then gets sent to the sin bin. From that moment, we, we know that there's three scrums that the, the Welsh win. James Slipper is worn next to one, you're off. And somehow the Welsh fall into the trap of the Irish week earlier and played the blind side, perhaps not going to the open side where they should have, get held up over the line. That moment there was huge because you're right, the Welsh deserve to be 14 points up. In fact, they're just seven. So they end up going in at halftime. The Aussies are thinking, geez. You know, 40 minutes, boys, we're 40 minutes away, get back on even terms and we're a chance. Clearly, that didn't happen for the first 15 because Tom Robertson goes immediately and down to 13 now. And um, they showed great amount of fight to get back into it. And it all started with Mark Nwanganitawasi, didn't it? Like, we've been singing his praises for quite a while, so it's nice when a player for once probably doesn't go back into their shell or have a moment or two where you go, oh, dear. And Darren Coleman, the Warriors' coach, had told me before the day that the Wallabies left for the spring tour and said, look, he'll probably get a moment or two where he'll get really badly exposed. And that's that's fair, but, uh, you know, he'll have some good moments too. But we only saw the good moments. So were three of the best, best tests from a debutant you'll ever see. He was outstanding. And... So you, you you put some of these guys together, the Nick Frost, the Mark Nwanganitawasis, the guys like uh, Jock Campbell gets an opportunity, had some good moments at times. And you go, okay, there's there's some green shoots coming through here. But I, I tend to agree with you that the character, the idea that close enough is good enough, it, it, it's not good enough. It's, it's a high-performance sport where you've got to win. And at the end of the day, a coach is always going to say, character they're always going to fall back on those lines because they don't want to throw themselves under the gun do they um similarly players and senior players who are perhaps in leadership positions they're generally going to be supportive of the coach and the coaching structure however um dave rennie did say we're a tight group i think they are largely tight um but down to 25 blokes if they had have lost a back throughout the week, it would have been a 6-2 split. Um, who knows what happens if a hooker had gone down. We saw Flower Fyinger on the Thursday. Um, it might have been the Friday, rather, their captain's run. And um, and Flower Fyinger goes down the, the tunnel and we all, well, Tom Deason and I look at each other going, okay. As it turned out, they were training on an artificial pitch and it was put to them, look, if you hear, feel anything a bit tighter, just go. We, we can't off. afford anything. So there was a couple of players, and Nick Frost left a bit earlier as well. Um, they were taking – it would have been one of their lighter weeks ever in a, a well of his training session um, week. Uh, but that doesn't say that they weren't putting in. We saw numerous kind of big shots and um, – uh, you know, they're training in the rain and it's bucketing down and sickness and cold start to pick up after the four or five weeks away, journos included. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, he, he is right. There was character shown, but I don't think that should excuse the fact that still it was two wins from five 
And any time that an Australian um, side goes on a spring tour, two from five is not good enough, particularly when you're losing to Italy and your two wins against Wales and Scotland. You've got to put it in your context. Um, yes, a lot of players missing, but a hell of a lot more um, precision uh, and the ability to dominate from the outset and put sides away early are, are massive work-ons for this side. They sure are, and we've known that for a while. And I, I guess it's we, we won't just start to think forward until next year just yet. Um, clearly, uh, I think there's five tests uh, on on the radar or on, on the run to the World Cup next year in in the in the book at the moment. The four rugby championship tests and one against host France um, before the World Cup as well. But just going back to Mark Norgani Tawasi, um, he's got to be just about the story of the season, or certainly the back half of the season anyway. We had Nick Frost come through earlier in the year, clearly um, through the injuries at, uh, at Lock, a player we've spoken about who was saved from going to Japan, um, who probably might not have returned before 2025, potentially otherwise. You now have to say that he's a, he's a bona fide test lock option moving forward. But Mark, um, from his, where he started the season at the Waratahs, just kind of on the on the outer edges of the squad, really, wasn't he? Um, forces his way in. And by the end of the year, both he and Dylan Peach, you and I were talking about those two guys at that point as, you know what, a few injuries along the back half of this year and, and these two guys are going to be right in the money. And and we know big Nemanja Nandolo is coming into the Waratahs next year and you'd think he's going to have to bide his time on the bench behind those two, but what a wonderful opportunity for those two guys to continue their development with uh, Nemani coming there, um, finished up on the weekend for Leicester, but he's just got something about him, hasn't he? I saw him compared to might've been Paul Cully in the Herald today that Australia have been searching for their next version of, of Israel Folau since the debacle that was his eventual departure in Australian rugby. But He's a different kind of player, isn't he? He's obviously got that ability to go through and and take balls in the air. He's got good footwork, but he's also got this Marika Corombetti side to him where he goes in looking for work around the ruck as well, which is not something we really associated with Izzy. He didn't like to get too close in there and, and have a look for a, for a pick and go or a perhaps little flick pass or an inside ball, one or two out there. He was very much a finisher in those outside channels and an aerial, aerial threat in those outside channels. So... He's clearly got a lot of work to do, Mark. No one's going to need to RC. And as we were saying last week, that um, these other test nations are going to school up on him between now and and certainly next year. And and who knows what might happen between now and then. But um, you can't help but not be impressed by, as you say, three superb performances back to back to back in a Wallaby side that was where the world was closing in around them. Um, he was just a, a revelation. Yeah, and to begin with, Dylan Peach, he, you're right, he was close. We did speak about him. We spoke to Dave Bruning about him um, throughout the Cardiff Wales week, and he said that he was very impressed by him, the physicality, what he offers, the size, the speed. Um, and he's a former flanker, so that ability to get on the ball is, is something that they've picked up too. So um, full marks for our assessments throughout the year, but... Yeah, look, no one going to eat or ask you. This is a funny one because uh, without putting tickets on ourselves or even trying to say that we pump up players, you know, we got, and I say we as journalists, get criticised occasionally for headlines and this and that. Now, last week, a story that I've thrown up on the raw has an easy clone element 
attached to it. And and punters blow up Deluxe firstly because it's Izzy Falau, but secondly, you know, there's a perception that the media plays a role in the downfall of players when they don't succeed, which I just do not cop because um, it's the role of the coach, players around them, to keep people grounded. It's not the role of the media. The role of the media is to report what you see and to do it as accurately, fairly, and independently as you can possibly do. Absolutely. You look at you look at knowing you know, and you look at you compare his physicality and his shape and his legs, and his legs are the closest to Israel Folau's legs that I've ever seen. But they are they're horse legs, and he just when he and we didn't even get to see this on the weekend. We saw it a bit against Ireland, but his his ability in the air is. Uh, it's the best since Flair, no doubt. The way that he goes up for the ball above his hands, um, and just his his stride, um, he gives them a point of difference. Which we saw his ability, as you as you say, and astutely point out his ability with the feet, how he can step um, on the weekend, his work close in contact. Um, we didn't see the stuff in the air like we did against Ireland, but he's hungry and. He goes looking for the ball, which is we haven't seen a winger do that for a long, long time. Where they're um, they're in the thick of things, and we and we kind of asked Mark, I think it was on the weekend, said, you know, how do you have this kind of desire to go like searching for it? Is it a is it a um, have you just been given a license to roam? And he's like, well, no, but you know, I just back myself, and I've got this inner belief that I can do things. Um, I think it's great. I think people should get behind these sorts of guys because we're just storytellers after all. And we're at the moment, we're seeing a pretty cool story from a bloke who was sixth best, right? Like seated as the sixth best Waratahs winger to somehow ends up as the starting Wallabies winger. And you know what? You, 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 you roll forward 10 months later and there's only going to be four tests that are going to be played before the World Cup squad's announced because the last, the fifth one will be in France when the World Cup, squad has been assembled in France um, he's a guy that unless there's an injury um, or his form is, is woeful uh, he's, he's on his way to France for the World Cup next year he's just given them a breath of fresh air and a, and a real target out wide oppositions are now going to know okay this guy's good in the air we can't afford to give space uh, which opens up more space in the midfield channel it's a really big moment for him. I think this break comes at the perfect time because he's had three three great performances. He's now going to have a couple of months off. He'll get back into preseason in about six weeks. Uh, he'll have people like Darren Coleman that are pretty going to be pretty quick to bring him down, um, and that'll be important. But the competitive nature at the Waratahs next year will be important for keeping these guys in check and. Competition for places is going to be huge because I can see this Waratah side, much like the side of 2014-15, starting to dominate Wallaby selection, which will not uh, not make Reds fans happy, I can tell you that. Not in the slightest. Um, if we reflect briefly on the year as a whole, Christy, and I think we, we started, um, you and I and the other journos, there was a, um, there was a lunch down um somewhere here actually no it was on the gold coast issue wasn't i couldn't go up um, because of covid and you get the chance to sit down with dave rennie and and hit him with a few um questions in a more relaxed atmosphere over lunch it's it's a nice way to kind of open up the year and get a feel 
for just where he, he sees to taking the team. And um, I think both of the last two years, we've asked him what are the the problem positions in your Wallabies team or, or where are um, where are you still looking for the answer um, across numbers one through 15? And, and I still think we're in that same limbo with those same positions, aren't we really? It's, it's still number two. It's still, uh, it's still 15. Um, it's still probably not number 10, but at least a number 10 pecking order, if you like, behind what we think um, behind Quaid and, and probably then Bernie. Um, and I guess at a stretch, probably number number six too. There's, there's, although Jed Holloway's made that position his own on this tour, there's probably a little bit to play out with with Rob Liotta's comeback and and maybe another player emerging there in the back row. But two and fifteen do appear to be the problem areas, and they, and they appear to be significant problem areas still, don't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've been drawing up what I think are thirty three player squad could be and maybe we'll touch upon that in the in our last podcast but uh, two there's no one there that you go the out and out starter Dave Parecki's done a reasonable job um, concussion hasn't helped and that's going to be a, a consideration next year for sure because you don't want a player ruled out um, who either misses one or two or potentially more weeks than that um, because it just means that eventually you might have to replace someone if you get another injury. Um, 15, yeah, that's it. That's a real head-scratcher because at the moment, I, I don't think he's got a clue. And, and to be fair, Dave Rennie said, yep, I know who I think my 10 will be and no, I don't know who my 15 will be. And you can roll them off the tongue by saying from Andrew Kellaway to Tom Wright to Jock Campbell to... Um, you know, Reese Hodge potentially, uh, Tom, guys Tom Banks, like Tom yeah. Banks. What's going to happen? Is Tom Banks in in consideration? How far can you stretch the overseas selection policy? That's a really interesting question. Um, Curtly Beal, does he come into consideration? Where are these guys going to be playing next year at Super Rugby level? Because you've got Kellaway who predominantly played on the wing or outside centre for the Rebels recently. Um, and there was a bit of mixing and matching with Reese Hodge. Um, Tom Wright has predominantly been seen as a winger with Tom Banks being there. And yes, Tom Banks was injured for a few weeks earlier in 2022, which allowed Tom Wright to shift. But we've been asking questions, why haven't these players been given more opportunities? And I know I have around Tom Wright because he's got an elusive factor about him, doesn't he? Which is... There's, there's a lot of attributes around Tom Wright where you go, there's a bit of Willie LaRue about him. But on the other hand, you look at him and you go, what's happening around, um, you know, under the high ball, how safe he is, what kind of mistakes happens. And there's a few of them. But that happens, I think, when you don't have continuity in selection and an understanding of where people will be because you often overstretch and overplay your hand. But... Tom Banks will be fascinating because he's played less than a completed game, basically. He played 20 minutes against England in the first test and then against Scotland, he played about 60, 65. Um, that's all he's played the entire 2022. And he came into 2022 not even betting down his spot or where people can go, he is Australia's fullback. There was talk all the time around why can't he convert super rugby space and um, the ability to run freely. Why can't he do that at test level? 
I think it'd be a huge part to pick Tom Banks on this tour because he's also a fullback specialist. I don't think he's a winger. He can on, uh, at a pinch, but I don't, I don't think he's a great winger. So how many specialist positions, players, can you take? And that's the, the consideration. It's a balance between that and guys who've got versatility. But I'd love to know if you were to name your two preferred 15s at the moment and maybe one who's a versatile guy or a guy that can um, potentially play at 10 or 12 as well. Um, which often is taken on board when you're picking a 33-person squad. What, who would you say at the moment is, is lining up for fullback for the first test of next year against, it might be South Africa or Argentina, I'm not sure. It's a hell of a question, and I, and I do wonder around this, this idea to better alignment between Rugby Australia and the Super Rugby coaches, clearly. Um, now, you've got to think that um, Jordi Pattaya and, and Jock Campbell are both got, one are going to be playing 15 for the Reds, aren't they? Um, potentially Andrew Kellaway and Reese Hodge are both going to be wanting to play 15 at the Rebels. So how are we going to work through these these situations? Tom Wright is probably one with a clear run um, there at the Brumbies, you would think, although they've got a couple of sevens recruits, I think, coming in from memory. Um, and Kirtley, Jesse Mogg. And, oh, sorry, I'm not going to say old Jesse Mogg, but... A, a slightly more veteran status, Jesse Mogg these days, um, and, and currently at the the Waratahs. So, um, look, I, I I'm not completely sold on on Kirtley perhaps as much as you are at this point. I still think there's there's a very interesting final chapter to write in, in Kirtley's story. I'm not sure whether it's going to be, you know, a, a happy finish or a sad finish just yet. But we knowing Kirtley, it will be eventful. Um, I think probably huh. Tom Wright, given he has the opportunity to potentially make that 15 jersey his own at the Brumbies. Um, And I've got to think now that, um, you know, we've got to factor in Marky Mark, as we were saying before, on on that right wing with, we absolutely think Marika will be there on the left next year, uh, obviously injury permitting. So I think probably for me, it's, it's Tom Wright and then, and then Andrew Kellaway with Geordie Pattaya being the smoky because I was I was expecting him to start there on the weekend, I must admit. I thought that was the opportunity after he'd been named there to replace Tom Banks in the second test against England, if we remember correctly, there in Brisbane, and then was off, I think, after about six or seven minutes with a concussion. So um, there's just so much to play out there, isn't there? And, and one of the positions, as we said at the start of this discussion around, you know, that the, along with Hooker is... Um, we thought we might have a, a clearer idea of, of where the, the cards were going to fall at this point, but um, we're certainly entering uh, into 2023, none the wiser. But I would say for me, Tom Wright and then Andrew Kellaway. Um, anyway, uh, mate, before we, we park mm. this completely, I'm going to hit you with one without notice now. Um, give me a give me a bolter from outside Wallabies squad so far. Um, is there anyone next year in Super Rugby who you're expecting to come through and and put pressure on? Uh, great question. One that is without notice. Uh, I just think that there's been 51 players used throughout the year. I think anyone else um, that's coming into the consideration is it's probably unlikely um, because the, the the net has been cast so widely. I, I can't imagine anyone else coming in at this late stage. Um, so I, I can't think of anyone. I think guys like a Tom Hooper um, from the Brumbies. Guys that they're guys that you go okay. If there's an injury or two, maybe uh, because he's got a good ability to cover six and maybe lock and 
and other areas in the back row potentially. I think Lockie Swinton is one though that didn't play this year, and I would still him have him as a as a smoker, Smokey, because he he can hit hard. He brings a lot of the physicality that Dave Rooney likes in the six kind of channel. Um, the big question is how he'll go um, in terms of high tackles, reckless play, because he can't take too many of those sorts of guys. But it is about playing on the edge at times, and he's a guy that plays on the edge. I get the feeling that 12 months on the sidelines will have made Lockie Swinton reflect a lot about how he wants to play um, and what are the, some of the tools required for him to succeed and play in a game which is in 2023 and the health and safety and well-being is, is first and foremost the, the, the most paramount thing for world rugby officials. So That'll be a curious kind of factor, but I can see Lockie Swinton being one. Yeah, Tom Hoover was the name that, that came to me. And obviously, Charlie Gamble, too, uh, probably one to keep a keen yeah. eye on at the Waratahs as well. Uh, mate, you're in the perfect position over there now, uh, looking, uh, casting a little bit of a wider net, a broader sphere at the the rugby world right now. Two coaches who under um, have probably gone ahead of Dave Reading in terms of uh, being under some enormous pressure. Um, Wayne Pivak obviously was in a similar position to, to Dave Rennie before the weekend's game, having lost to Georgia. Um, there's rumours around over there now. Uh, Warren Gatland could be on his way back. Um, not sure whether that's in a more of a director of rugby role or a straight replacement for Pivak himself. Um, Eddie Jones, um, RFU doing their similar dance again. Uh, we're bitterly disappointed or certainly hugely disappointed with the autumn results, I think was the... The quote from RFU boss, uh, Bill Sweeney, um, on Sunday, your time. Um, just fill us in on, on some of the vibe up there at the moment, mate. You're obviously um, amongst it there in, in London. I don't think anyone thinks at this point that that Eddie's going to get the sack. Um, we all probably agree that the RFU missed its window on that one post Six Nations. Um, but certainly there is, there's a lot of fan anger, I think, isn't there, from English supporters right now that particularly paying such good money to go and watch their team play at Twickenham. And I think across, you know, the four games, Japan was Japan. They won easily. Um, but apart from the 10 minutes of, of decent rugby that they they really got on a roll there against a 14-man All Blacks team last week, that that was a pretty bloody ordinary autumn. Yeah. And look, there would be no... I think you'd probably have to rate them at about four out of 10 for this autumn series. Um not saying that they don't have the capacity to get higher than that, but yeah, like a, a one-point loss against Argentina, I think it was uh, a big win against the Japanese, which showed against a side like Japan or maybe a, a fringe team that they can really roll up their sleeves and do a number. But yeah, you're not wrong. Had they had they beaten the All Blacks, it would have been slightly different. Um, uh, they probably felt like they got the momentum win out of that, but. In reality, it's still a draw. So, yeah, look, uh, the South Africans, what a try they scored there to open up the game. That was some breathtaking stuff, if you can watch it. I've got a question. I, I thought it was a shepherd to begin with. I thought the bloke tracking back was clearly in interference. So I, I don't know how you can argue that. I watched it a few times, and, and I'm a bit both ways. That I, I guess he doesn't come in front of him. There's definitely shepherding going on. But I, I don't think it's a penalty for obstruction. I think it's a penalty probably for running the the chaser off the ball. I had a bigger problem with the second try when even Etzebeth was clearly on the ground 
picks the ball up and, and puts it on the line. Now, number one rule of rugby or number two behind you can't pass the ball forwards is if you're on the ground, you're out of play. So I was bemused that that wasn't at least picked up by the TMO um, in some regards. But I mean, on the whole, they were, they were well beaten again, weren't they? Like uh, the Springboks, um, it was a, they yeah. just beat them up through the forwards. Um, the set piece was really dominant, smashed them at scrum time. Um, and England really never fired a shot uh, apart from a few brief moments. And I, I think the jury's still out on whether, you know, Marcus Smith and, and Owen Farrell can combine. Um, there's a push in some quarters to bring back um, George Ford there at number 10. Uh, we probably haven't seen the best of Manu Tuilagi for some time now. Um, it, it just feels like we know they've got this amazing group of players. And think about a guy like Dave Ribbons. I'm not sure if it's Dave or certainly Ribbons, the big lock came off the bench last week against New Zealand and looked so good. They've got this enormous net of players, but Eddie really hasn't been able to bring them together. Um, and whether this is a, an issue of cohesion because they are spread across, you know, the, the 10 or 11 teams in the premiership, whatever it is now um, that they, you know, they're just not gelling as a team. And and at the moment, you, you'd have to say that um, a bit like Australia, they've got some good rugby in them, but they haven't got anywhere near the consistency needed to be a genuine World Cup threat next year. Yeah. Oh, to, to, to get back to your earlier point, are they under pressure? Yes. Is anything going to happen to Eddie Jones? I wouldn't think so. Is Wayne Pivak likely to be there? I don't think so. There was, there was you know, Lions doing the rounds that he was gone regardless of the result on Saturday um, uh, local time uh, guys like Brad Moore I think the, the former Crusaders uh, who you know assistant coach who, who then went and um, joined the All Blacks for a couple of matches before he got punted um, his name has been floated and um, so yeah, I, you can see some some changes. You can see some changes for the Wallabies as well. I, I can't imagine Petrus Tupasi remaining with the Wallabies um, beyond this year. Um, it might not be announced until late January, perhaps. Um, but, but I can see some tinkering going on there. Um, the, the the benefit that the Northern Hemisphere sides have, and we say the benefit but maybe it's not worked in the past because they've only ever won one World Cup. But um, they have a Six Nations campaign where it's going to be a great opportunity for them to work out who's who in the zoo. And it's the last big opportunity. They then have a number of test matches to warm up over the summer um, before they go into their um, World Cup campaign. So they probably have double the amount of tests to work out before the World Cup than the Wallabies do. So... That'll be the last opportunity to work out. You're right about the conundrum with the 10-12 situation. I still think that Tuolangi's best at 12. Um, I, I, you, know, you, you see Owen Farrell being in that team, though, somewhere. So it'll be really fascinating to see what goes on there. There's those others like Chris Jones, who I spoke to throughout the week, who said, well, you know, whilst they're continually trying to work out whether or not Smith and Farrell work, they already know that Ford and Farrell work. So why don't they just go back to what they already know? A guy that's in great form for Leicester and had been for a while uh, leading him to a premiership not that long ago so yeah some big questions um, but if there's a person that you do back to get and the experience um, history shows someone who can do it and that's that's Eddie Jones but it'll be interesting to see if other figures will also join 
um, respective nations. I can see Scott Robertson joining Eddie Jones' as England. Um, I wonder whether or not uh, a Wayne Smith potentially could join a Dave Rennie. I think that would be great. Um, I don't think Rugby Australia would necessarily allow it because it would be a, a New Zealand coach coming in. Um, and I know that there's a push for Australian coaches, but, geez, wouldn't it be interesting if Wayne Smith joined his old mate, Dave Rennie? Um, that would be another little twist. Stuart Barnes, actually, in his article uh, for, I think it is The Times, um, saying that uh, Wayne Smith should be the man that um, England should bring in immediately. Uh, he's had a gutful of Eddie. Um, and we know that this coaching, let's call it a merry-go-round, is probably already underway, right? Like, is it going to be whoever the first coach is to move or um, the first coaching announcement ahead of the World Cup is really going to kind of force a little bit of a domino effect around these guys that include Dave Rennie, Scott Robertson, um, Eddie Jones, um, some others on the fringes, um, Jamie Joseph, Tony Brown, um, certainly in this part of the world, Steve Borthwick with with England. Um, Ronan Agara is a guy who is pretty keen to, I think, um, jump from club footy with with La Rochelle uh, to, to the test arena sooner rather than later. So that's going to be a fascinating little sidebar in the first part of, of next year as well. Um, mate, before we, we wrap up, um, let's talk a little bit about, I guess, South Africa, World Rugby, Rassi Erasmus, which we've touched on a little bit over the last few weeks. Um, John Smith um, speaking with Chris Jones at uh, the World Rugby Awards in Monte Carlo last week um, on their podcast, um, the BBC Rugby Daily, uh, now back to a Rugby Weekly, um, around uh, around Brassie's comments, John Smith, the, the Springboks World Cup winning captain of, of 2007 and saying that they've made the Springboks a, a very uh, easy team to dislike. Um, now, I think that's that's been pretty clear um, over the past few weeks. Um, and then we hear of the weekend that Brassie went and met with World Rugby and had some honest discussions around the state of the game and the refereeing and after he'd been handed this this two-game ban. And I just found that all quite problematic that it was almost like that World Rugby had been, you know, talked into this by by Rassi, by a guy who they'd already suspended for 12 months um, in terms of match day involvement with the team. Uh, and then the two-game ban after the 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 tweets following the the French game and and after the, the Irish defeat as well. So, I, I found that a little bit problematic, um, but you've got a little bit of news coming um, uh, that you heard last week during your travels around just what the refereeing reaction was to, to Rassi's comments over the last few weeks. Yeah, look, you can take from it what you will, but I had heard on pretty strong authority that the referees were very close to going on strike if for South Africa and were prepared to walk away from refereeing, officiating a, a game that involves South Africa and Razzi Erasmus. So that's from what I'd heard about how far this got to. Um, and we know that there was the uh, the two-game ban that was forthcoming uh, and perhaps that was a little bit of a peace offering for the here and the now. But, yeah, it's serious. Um, like That's a serious measure to take and it... And it's fair enough because, as we've said, one of the great things about rugby is that a player is shown a yellow or a red card, and generally speaking, there's not an argument. Players shut their mouths and walk off. And 
Um, do we want players, um, young players, looking at referees and and from junior levels, senior levels, abusing referees? And I don't think we do. And additionally to that, you know, the amount of vitriol that players and coaches and referees receive is ridiculous. And you know, the amount of death threats that people get is simply shocking and there can't be a place where we encourage someone to completely undermine the officiating system it doesn't work in society where you can go after the police etc etc like this because uh, you know anarchy would be forthcoming as a result but yeah that's an interesting revelation i think um and whether or not we ever kind of completely get to the like why it's um taken place but rassies have it's very hard to suspend someone who's the reigning World Cup champion coach. And he's become probably too big for his own boots um, and a problem that World Rugby hasn't been able to handle in, in recent months and indeed the last 18 months ever since he went on his rant um, video analysis undermining the authority of an Australian Nick Berry. Yeah, and let's be clear, like the refereeing, you know, we do it in the media all the time. We've done it on this podcast. We reflect on individual decisions and then we move on. But we're also not coaches doing, as you say, um, cutting up bits of video and putting them out there to social media, which drives this problem that is goes well beyond sport. Uh, you know, we have people from all professions and all walks of life who, who cop it on social media. And it's not even a South African thing. We saw it with Ben O'Keefe following the the Island Test with the Wallabies a few weeks ago. I'm sure there was any number of Australian fans by what he posted online revealing some of the abuse he, he's copped. Um, but there's a time for the coaches to do it, and that's to go through the official channels after the match, before the match, to say, look, we saw this in this game and we'd love you to watch it, or we think you got this decision wrong. Can you give us an explanation behind closed doors? It's not to do it in the public sphere to open up this free-for-all pile-on for the referees like Wayne Barnes, whose family received death threats. And I think who you and I would agree is probably by far and away the best ref in the game um, in the way he controls things and, and holds himself out in the middle. So it's a problem. Um, who knows where it goes from here? Uh, what else is to come out of those world rugby meetings? I think, you know, are we any, any talk of a nation's championship resolution for, for 24 or 26, potentially, we might find that out. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think Rassi, the big one, and hopefully, you know, this will bring an end to his social media critiques. Um, but if it doesn't, then I think World Rugby have got to come down with him on, like, come down on him like a ton of bricks. Oh, it's completely. And, you know, he's the guy that the only reason why, you know, we don't want stop and starts any more stop or start kind of nature and rugby, but. He is the reason, the single reason that water breaks have been introduced halfway through um, halves of rugby, which is just ridiculous. That rule, law, whatever they call it, it's got to be thrown out into the scrap bin immediately. Um, we can't have rugby being a laughing stock for next year's World Cup, which it won't, but we don't we don't want any more kind of things that that um, that take away from the on-field action. Before before I leave you. Sam, um, the other bit of news from Dave Rennie's uh, press conference last week, which was um, he spoke about um, regarding his tens, which then opened up probably a bit more of a can of worms regarding 
desire to relook and re-examine the Gitto law, which then turned into the overseas selection policy. Sam, I, my hunch is that apparently as it stands, there's three. Has Australia always turned to three this year? No, they haven't. Um, they had two for the end of season spring tour throughout the rugby championship, uh, despite the injuries to Quaid, uh, Samu. I think they only had two as well, and Rory Arnold and then Bern Foley, um, Marika at times. Um, uh, Arnold left before Foley played, so there was really only ever two playing. I think that can go to five, potentially six. It'll be fascinating to see what happens there. But would you be in favour of uh, re-examination and extension of that in a World Cup year? I think in isolation for a World Cup year, given the situation Australia are in right now, it, it's a move that, that's got to be made. I think you've seen enough from certainly Quaid, Samu and Marika, who we probably all agreed if it was three, that was the three. But I also think now, and I reflected on this this afternoon, watching the, the Springboks and in, in England game, just how much power you need um, and you're going to need at the World Cup next year. And and I think Will Skelton, for me, is, is going to add that dimension to a Wallabies pack, whether that's um, in a starting capacity or off the bench, like we saw against Ireland last week. So I, I think, I you know, to five, to six, um, is, is Will Skelton, does he go ahead of Rory Arnold, given Rory's probably a similar player to, say, a, an Isaac Rodder? Um, perhaps you could stay at, at five there. And, and now that Bernard Foley clearly looks to be the, the number 210, that... Um, you know, he's probably got to be on the plane as well. So, look, I, I think six um, would be fair on this occasion. And and that's not, you know, that's not saying it's open slather. Um, you keep it to, you know, virtually what it was for the first time we saw the Skiddo Law concept in 2015, which I think happened around May of, of that year, um, which obviously made um, Matt Giddo and Drew Mitchell immediately available Brandon Poinger Ramos is a guy at hooker that I'm sure a lot of Queenslanders are probably still putting there. Um, you putting his name out there again, um, wondering, you know, whether he could be an option. I'm not sure, you know, how well he's been playing in the top 14. I think with Stade Francais, is it? Or no, that's where Latu was. Who was, anyway, one for a bit Mont, of... Mont, Mont, Montpellier. Montpellier for... For Brandon. So look, mate, yeah, I, I think it will happen. Um, I think that Rugby Australia know that um, the situation had Noel Olesia come on um, in or been perhaps better managed. We won't get into that now from a, a coaching perspective. It might not have happened. Um, but I think given what we've seen from these players at various times over the last two years, certainly Quaid, and Samu last year, Marika the whole time. We know um, he's one of the best wingers in the world, was named in that World Rugby Dream Team last week. Um, and I, you know, I've spoken about Will Skelton. He's a big body. Um, I like him either in that starting capacity or in an extended stint off the bench. And I think he's going to be hugely critical come the knockout phase next year. So five or six, let's call it six and, and let's call it all done, all done. I'm with you there. I think six is imperative um, for a World Cup year. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm not in favour of it then shifting again. Um, but for a Lions series in the Home World Cup, you want to encourage players home. Um, the you know likelihood of more funding coming in or private equity, which means you might be able to bring one or two of those guys back as well. So I'd like to see it maybe return to a three going forward, but um, following the World Cup. But I think, yeah, that was imperative for the next year's World Cup. Um, 
we'll, we'll see. I don't think that decision will be made for a couple of months and you'll probably see it kind of politely released pretty quietly on a Friday afternoon. But hopefully, um, hopefully we gain some more clarity around that because I dare say a lot of people will be sweating on selection. It'll be hotly contested given how many players were missing and yet they still managed to beat Wales over the weekend. But yeah, that, that caps it. A roller coaster year, that's for sure. Just before we go, mate, your off-field highlights of the last couple of weeks. Um, who was uh, best on ground? We know Tommy Decent was probably happy to get a an injection of uh, of Australian blood when you joined him there in uh, in Dublin. Um, highs and lows the last couple of weeks. I think the high and the low for me is Drew Mitchell um, joined us for a couple of um, evenings at times. Uh, watched a bit of the football together when Australia was. Um, you know, the Socceroos were playing and there was uh, the Welsh were playing their second game where they got shocked. Um, I think the highlight and the low light was when Drew Mitchell sunk every ball uh, on the pool table and left Tom Deason without a shot. Um, Tom is a big snooker fan, so he was left pretty devastated and surprised by that one. But full marks to Drew Mitchell there. But I think also just the... Um, the Welsh atmosphere, if you get the opportunity to ever go to Cardiff and to, to hear some of the singing, the national anthem, the lead-up, the hour build-up, there's a lot of singing that goes on in the, on the field there. It's, a, it's an amazing picture. And the Irish game started at 8 o'clock at local time, so it was quite a late one there. Um, had it been a bit earlier, you might have seen uh, a slightly different atmosphere, but... Also 13-10, so it was quite a, um, a closely fought, tense game. Um, but some of these grand theatres of international rugby is what makes rugby so attractive, um, so unique. It doesn't compare to an origin game. It's, it's, it's by far and away better, in my opinion, because you've got something that's so unique to an international stage where it's so local, um, that it's incredibly special to go to. And, and if you ever get the chance, go to a spring tour, jump on one or two of the games, you'll get a picture of it. We'll certainly get a picture of it next year's World Cup. But uh, I think imagine going to an, an England, Wales, Six Nations game or something like that, where there's the, the local patronage around it all. Um, great, great couple of weeks over here. Yeah, Principality, a special place there in the heart of Cardiff and uh, Oyeka that if you ever get the chance to go, it is uh, really a uh, once in a lifetime or so if you can go multiple times, go multiple times, but uh, something you'll certainly never forget. All right, mate, um, that'll do us for this week. Uh, as I said, maybe one more pod, a Christmas edition um, to come this year. We'll talk about that when you get back. Safe travels. Uh, been great following your coverage for the Raw. Um, plenty on ESPN as always, so please check that out in the run to Christmas. Um, otherwise, uh, I've got the linen on. I'm ready for a bit of summer. And, um, yeah, we'll look forward to a beer on uh, your return. Look forward to it. Cheers, guys.